Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses worked your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Hello there, prom party. <laughs> Hello. Why are you laughing like Seth Rollins? Um, because I'm excited that we're doing the movie that nobody asked for. <laughs> you asked for. Don't say nobody, nobody asked for this. Nobody else you asked, asked for, this. for this. Okay, well, that's, it's this is for me. And honestly, I know what we're going to end up talking about because... This movie is going to have so much more of a deep discussion than it ever deserved. (laughs) You know what? You're not wrong. I'm so excited. So if you listened last week, you know that we did 13 going on 30 because someone over here... Was going on 30? But just like how I got to cover Josie and the Pussycats for my birthday, I asked Harmony, what movie do you want to cover for your birthday? Yep. And uh, I'm sure you all have read the title, but we're covering Sorority Boys... Yes, we are. (laughs) And to say that this is a very important movie to me would be an understatement. To say that this is a good movie would be an overstatement. (laughs) However, I think this is a much better movie than most people realize. And I'm sure that some of you looked at the title, maybe then Googled the poster or saw any of the things that we post on social media and went, hmm, this ends at prom. I don't know if this is a teen girl movie. You know what, friends? We don't know who this movie is for. In the two decades that I have been thinking about this movie, I am not sure who this was made for as the target audience. Yeah, no, we have no idea. But what we can say is that this movie is very important to Harmony. This is my teen girl experience. And since Harmony did not get to have a traditional teen girl experience, if this is what baby wants to cover for her birthday, this is what baby gets. Here's the thing is, I, I, I'm going to take you all on a journey. <laughs> I will be your Willy Wonka through like the hellish tunnel. And I have many compelling arguments for why this actually is a teen girl movie. Yes, yes, you do. And we will get into them. So for those who have not seen Sorority Boys, which I can only imagine (laughs) is a majority of you. So shout out to all of you listeners who listen, even if you haven't seen the movie before. This is your week to shine, my (laughs) friends, because I feel like a lot of you haven't seen this. So according to our friend Dango... Oh, God, I'm scared of this one. (laughs) In this hilarious comedy, Dave, Barry Watson, 
Adam, Michael Rosenbaum, and Doofer, Harlan Williams, are about to go where no fraternity boy has gone before. In Touchstone Pitcher's Sorority Boys, our heroes are three playboy chauvinists who, strapped for cash, find themselves drawn to one last desperate hope for free housing, one of their campus sororities, Delta Omicron Gamma, or DOG. I don't think that actually is a good summarization of this plot at all, honestly. I don't think it is either. I think that is what they led with because then it's like, oh, forever comedy. This is hilarious. Yeah. And that's not what this movie is. No, not at all. And I have to say that calling this, leading with calling this movie hilarious is really funny to me because the copy that I own of this movie on DVD, because yes, I own it has one single little blurb from a critic one on it. One pull quote. One pull quote. And it says, big laughs, three stars. <laughs> San Francisco Chronicle. That's it. Big laughs, three stars. And three stars, like, this is likely out of five. So that's still like a C. That's I like- want to believe it's ten. <laughs> I want to believe that. I, I have no qualms about pooping all over this movie, despite loving it to absolute pieces. <laughs> this movie is probably in the top five most watched movies of my life. Up there with like Jaws <laughs> and The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> okay, so now that we've kind of gotten to that point, can you please tell our listeners what was your experience seeing this movie for the first time? Because you've clearly seen this before me. Yeah. So... Lay it down. What is the history of Little Baby Harmony and Sorority Boys? So, growing up in Ohio, to say that um, a movie like this is out of place, which it should be out of place anywhere, I don't know where this place in history is for this film, is is a statement. It's pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it when it was a new release. And looking at the cover, seeing our three main characters honestly look better than they look throughout most of the film. Agreed completely. Like, they all look kind of hot on the cover and don't really look kind of hot in the movie. Yeah. Like, Dave looks pretty good in the movie. The other two, not so much. But I uh, saw this and went, those are men in dresses. Those are men in dresses. That's a thing you can do. That's an option. (laughs) <laughs> because before this, like, you can think of Bugs Bunny in a dress or something like that is right. the easy comparison for a sort of drag style performance in children's media mm-hmm. at the time. And that's usually a bit that lasts for 10, 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Put one over on Elmer Fudd. But these were real people. Mm-hmm. And this was real. And it was a whole movie built around it. And I went, I have to see this. And so I begged my mom to let me see this at like <laughs> 11 years old. And... She insisted, okay, we'll watch it, but we are going to watch it. I'm watching it with you, and if I think it's bad, we're going to turn it off. And for whatever reason, my extremely prude, bland mother did not turn this movie off when one of the opening things you see is them launching dildos across campus. Part of me wants to believe that she didn't know that's what they were and just assumed, like, they were water balloons. Here's the thing. That's what I thought. See, it makes sense to me that an 11-year-old at the time boy would have thought that. Like, think it's, like, to think, like, it's a water balloon or those, like, um, squishy, glowy whatevers that everyone always calls a child's first fleshlight. Yes. <laughs> yes, the, the little squishums. Yes, that yeah, thing. Yeah. I thought it was one of those because there's definitely a scene where one launches through, like, 
Heather Matarazzo's window, and you you can clearly see it's a dick. Yeah. It's not like, oh, it's outside, and it's at night, so it's not well lit, and it's flying through the air, so you don't really get a good look at it. Mm-hmm. No, it's clearly a dick. Yeah. And my mother asked me, do you know what that is? And I was like, is it a water balloon? And she went, no. And then we didn't talk about it anymore. <laughs> but I want to believe that, one, I was I hadn't hit puberty yet. I was a very innocent child. But also we had like a 20-year-old TV at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think we didn't have the best clarity with which to see uh, like the veins. Right. <laughs> the, the, the aspects that are ribbed for her pleasure. Yeah. You, like not really good definition on the boober. No. <laughs> so um, I, I want to say that, yes, I could not tell it was a penis because I was young. But I'm going to blame the TV more so. <laughs> So in watching this movie, did you have like this aha moment similarly to seeing the cover? Kind of. I don't know if it was a full on aha moment, but it certainly opened a a world of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And they would sort of present themselves periodically in different media, in other pieces of media as I got older. Um, One of the closest comparisons I can make to this film was a show that ran for a single season, I think on TBS, called He's a Lady. (laughs) And it was basically a show where like 12 dudes show up and they're like, 12 of the most macho, macho men are here to win like a quarter million dollars. Macho. And they show up and it's like, this Barbie Dreamhouse nightmarescape, mm-hmm. and they have to essentially live as women for like the next eight weeks or something in mm-hmm. order to win their prize by putting on makeup and doing beauty pageants, and we're forced to go out in public like this. And mm-hmm. honestly, it's a lot of like basic gender role stuff, but from what I remember of this show, it works a lot better from an outside looking in perspective of like, oh yeah, this is how we treat trans women. It They're, they're treated like jokes. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of how this movie functions, Mm -hmm. because it is a better trans read than probably 90% of trans movies, especially from 2002 and earlier. Okay, so let's kind of set the stage here with 2002, (laughs) (laughs) which I also find is really interesting because my birthday movie was in 2001 and yours is in 2002, and I really want to see how different the world is within just that year, because after, I would say like 9-11 after Y2K, Mm -hmm. everything starts changing so quickly, unlike in the 80s and 90s where you'd have like three to four, maybe even five-year stints where something super popular. Once you get into the 2000s, things are changing by the month. Also, I think, you know, the commonplace of the internet helped change things as quickly as it did. Oh, totally. But 9-11 is a big thing that I actually wanted to highlight when we talk about this because... Looking at a lot of the other teen movies or teen-ish movies that exist from this era, I'm looking at both like, you know, the the teen boy and teen girl movies. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot that are like committed high school films. Like you still have like your children's media and stuff like that. Like that exists. I think Cadet Kelly came out this year or something like that. Hell yeah. But as far as like bona fide, you know, you're 16 or whatever. This movie's for you. It's not really there. They aged up a lot of stuff to be more of like a college age. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because like suddenly it's like, oh, hey, childhood whimsy's fucking gone. Yeah. The world the world is getting bombed and we're in American terror and blah, blah. Uh, things weren't quite as bad as we thought they were at the time. Right. But that's how it was painted. So what I think is really interesting about 2002 is that this is right between the release of American Pie 2 and American Wedding. And the American Pie series was big. 
Oh, yeah. The American Pie series changed the landscape for what was acceptable in teen films the same way that I would argue that John Hughes did in the 80s. Yes, because this really gave mainstream audiences sex comedies because mm-hmm. they had always existed, but they were never, you know, $250 million grossing box office films like this before right. for all three entries. Right. So that coming out in what would have been the first one, I think, was in 99, 2000. Something around there. So that really changed how things came across for the next few years. So you have movies released the same month as Sorority Boys, like National Lampoon's Van Wilder, or the opposite end of a sex comedy, almost an anti-sex comedy of 40 Days and 40 Nights. Mm-hmm. You also have similar films like Orange County coming out. I love Orange County. I also like That Orange movie County. does not get enough love. No, I also like Orange County. But these are not high school films. No. These are definitely movies that are shifting the goalpost for coming of age. Mm -hmm. Even if you look at like the teen girl movies that were out at the time, teen girls watched stuff like Sweet Home Alabama, which Legally Blonde was released the year before this and Mm -hmm. really springboarded Reese Witherspoon's career. But even Legally Blonde, not a high school movie. Mm -hmm. The Sweetest Thing, which is uh, we actually rewatched recently and Mm -hmm. talked about how now that we're in a post-sex in the city world... Yeah, now we're getting these comedies that are about women in their late 20s into their early 30s. Yes, and they're sex-based. Yes. For, like, the first time like this. Yes. And even something like the controversy of Pumpkin, which is, again, not a high school movie. These were some of the biggest teen, quote-unquote, movies of the year. Mm Mm-hmm. I, it's hard to really grasp who this movie was for, what it was doing, but it makes sense in this landscape. Mm -hmm. And 2002, I I only realized this looking back at it was kind of the year where all of my taste in movies was formed. (laughs) For better, for worse. Oh, for absolute worse. (laughs) Uh, Some of the other movies that came out this year include Kung Pao, Enter the Fist, which for all of its many, many faults, huge apologist for how endlessly quotable that movie is. Yes. Jackass the movie. Which I argue heavily in favor for the Jackass franchise, but that is an entirely different discussion for a different day. Correct. And our first ever movie we covered on the Sadie Hawkins dance, The New Guy. Oh, The New Guy. So all of those came out this one year. And the closest contemporary to this film, which I think does what this movie does, but much worse, is The Hot Chick. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I love The Hot Chick. It's not good, but I am a huge, like, apologist for The Hot Chick. And the difference between what Sorority Boys does versus The Hot Chick is that Rob Schneider is playing a gay stereotype pretty yes. pretty emphatically. This movie is not about a gay stereotype. This is about men playing women in a similar way to something like um, Some Like It Hot, mm-hmm. but not as funny or as classy. Right. But it's guys who are in drag not at all convincingly. Mm-hmm. But hilarity ensues because they're in women's spaces, and that opens me defending this movie up to a whole lot of scrutiny for people who hopefully don't listen to this podcast. Right. <laughs> a- A.K.A. the the TERFs or the not feminists, as is the correct case. Yes. So I think that really just focusing on the films and the 9-11 and early internet culture is kind of the only place we need to go to understand the place of this film contextually. Mm-hmm. But I do want to point out Sort of what we were ahead of mm-hmm. for a sec, which was bromance films. Ooh, yes. That's a very good point. Because if you think about uh, the mid to late 2000s, you had 
a lot of these films where men were allowed to be sensitive, kind of, for the first time. You had, like, Superbad, I Love You Man, um, Role Models, Pineapple Express to an extent, Wedding Crashers. The Hangover. The Hangover, yes, of course. And these are some 20-something men, for the most part, you know, just being buds. And they're hanging out, and they're supporting each other, and they have emotions and feelings related to how they love their friends. Well, it's also important to keep in mind that there's a big difference between buddy comedy movies and yes. romance movies. Because we had buddy comedy movies, like a million buddy cop films, Dude, Where's My Car? Like these things existed Bill and before. Ted. Bill and Ted, yes. Yeah. But those are buddy movies, not bromance movies. Right. And this movie is kind of bridging the gap between those two film genres. I would agree with that. I really would. Because the relationship that these three men share with one another is one not just of mutual benefit because they're obviously trying to get back into the good graces of their fraternity, mm -hmm. but they also genuinely do care about each other. They're very supportive of each other. Yes. And I'm sure that a lot of it is supposed to be played for, for laughs because it's like, oh man, Harlan Williams is really excited in this movie about this bag matching his shoes. And that's supposed to be a joke, but then they actually are giving each other like styling advice and mm -hmm. complimenting each other. And I think that this movie actually handles a communal trans experience in a way that I haven't seen other movies do. Hey, Doof. Hey, what do you think of this? I brought it from Leah. Huh? That is pretty. Huh? Yeah. Wish I could fit into a size six, man. Fuck! Oh, I can't take this! Hey, what do you think of this? You think I look good in this? Like a midriff and the thing? No, no. You need something more that, you know, something that accentuates your curves more. What the fuck is going on here? What's your problem? What's my problem? Where do I fucking start? My bra's rubbing me raw. I have a fat ass. And I've twisted my ankle three times today. Well, why are you wearing heels? We're in college. No one's wearing heels. Heels are out, man. Last year. Hello? Dude, they make my legs look slimmer. I have a fat ass. <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, I do. It's almost like, I don't, I don't want to call it the blind leading the blind, but if you wanted to draw like a parallel, this is like three people transitioning at the same time and having no advice on how to do it. Yeah. So they're just kind of helping each other out. It's like, oops, I got ingrown hairs. Why are you wearing heels? They make my legs look slimmer, but my ass look fatter and it's a problem. And it's like, dude, we, we're in college now. You don't have to wear heels. Yeah, but I have a fat ass <laughs> and it's easy for you to give me advice. You're pretty. And I, I like these interactions in this in this lens. <laughs> well, before we get too in in depth and big brain about this movie, because we're so big brain, we're gonna galaxy get so brain. galaxy brain about this godforsaken movie. But I want to sort of analyze who we're dealing with. So let's talk about like Dave, Adam, and Doofer. Who are these people that we're dealing with before? You know, going before everything happens. Before everything happens. So who who are these men? All right, so. Let's retcon the horrible Fandango synopsis we got here and actually talk about what this film's really about. So Dave, Adam, and Doofer are at the KOK house, or the cock house, mm -hmm. and specifically Adam and Dave are like the hot shots in their frat house, mm -hmm. and Doofer's the guy who's hung around for 10 years. 
Yeah, Doofer's that guy who never grew up and never left college, but hasn't graduated, so he's allowed to kind of hang around. It's honestly something you'd see Van Wilder do, but in a much more glamorous light. Yeah, Van Wilder does it, and it's like, he's the coolest guy on campus. Doofer does it, and it's like, oh my god, grow up and go home. Yeah, he's kind of a precursor to like something you'd see with old school a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These guys have distinctive, I guess, sort of goals and character traits that are very easily defined. Adam just wants to fuck people. Mm -hmm. He just wants to have sex with every woman and brag about it and just be like big dick swinging dude. Mm -hmm. That's his thing. It's very easy. Dave wants to have a girl he can have a conversation with Mm -hmm. and then also has sleep with her. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like the dirtbag who quotes Shakespeare to try and be deep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, you just, I don't, I don't know what Shakespeare is, and then he's disappointed, right? And then you have Doofer, who is just listlessly drifting through life with no goals or aspirations, and is just kind of here and drunk, and might have brain damage from crushing beer cans on his head for the last decade. Doofer is the one to me that I find the most interesting of all of them. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be real, because. He's fully aware of his status and what he has to do to maintain it because he knows he's kind of a fucking loser. Mm -hmm. And that's why he does things like drink his brains out and do all these things that are really cool at parties that people are going to pay attention to because Mm -hmm. that's the only way for him to maintain some sort of status. And what's really difficult is I knew people like that in college Mm -hmm. where they really didn't have friends outside of the party scene. And the only reason they had friends is because... They could do things at parties like keg stands or do whatever. They went the hardest. Because they went the hardest. And then you had that moment of instant gratification when the most popular guy in the frat would do kind of the bro tap on the shoulders and like, yeah, this guy's out of control. He's awesome. Mm -hmm. And they would do all of this really destructive shit for that moment. And that's who Doofer is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And these three are like, buds but they have different goals but they want to get there together yes so they're kind of just figuring it out as they go along and there's a one person in in their frat house matt gates uh because i've I've been calling ever since matt gates popped up on on the scene i've been calling spencer matt gates and just every time he pops up on screen i go that's not me (laughs) no they look identical they have the exact same face like if matt gates was blonde he would be spence and sorority boys and now that i've said it i need you to do a side-by-side photo and then now you're not going to be able to unsee it either you're welcome so funny to me because spence is not really on screen very much but he is our clear antagonist oh yeah but i love him as just like a really shitty uncle. He's kind of like how we hear stories about how everyone hated Ted Cruz in college and they made mm-hmm. fun of him. It's like that. Yeah, Spence is a wiener. He's <laughs> like, the biggest wiener. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's like you, there's a big difference between like, that guy's an asshole. That guy's a dick. That guy's a wiener. Like, yeah. Spence goes to Weenie Hut Jr. Yeah, he's the biggest wiener. And because he's the biggest wiener, he wants to take down the big guys on campus, mm-hmm. which are specifically Adam and Dave, and then by proxy Doofer. Yes. So he steals all of the money for the annual cocktail cruise, Mm -hmm. which is the cruise that they go on at the end of every school year, and they bring all of the alums, and then the alums get to go tomcatting and have sex with whatever hot women that they brought to the party, and then that's how they get there into corporate jobs, because that's how frat houses work. Yep. Yeah, surprise, that's how Greek life works. Yeah. And Spence frames them, yep. and they get 
shunned and cast out, and they have to figure out how to prove their innocence. And that sets up our series of uh, unfortunate, or I guess perhaps fortunate in my case, because I enjoyed my ride with this, (laughs) uh, events that is this film. Yeah, so once they get kicked out and they're trying to figure out how to get back into the frat house, because they also realize that there is a videotape. Because Adam's a dirtbag. Because Adam's a dirtbag. There's a videotape that can prove Spence stole the money out of the safe because the safe is right next to Adam's bed. And what does Adam do? He uh, records himself having sex with sorority girls without their consent. Like, mm-hmm. huge dirtbag move. Mm-hmm. And yet this is going to be the thing that can save them. And it's very important to note that this movie shows a lot of really dirtbag behavior, mm-hmm. a lot of misogynist behavior. And yet the movie doesn't frame it in a way that makes you think, oh, this is a cool thing to do at college. You're not supposed to like any of the people who do this stuff. No, this isn't like Revenge of the Nerds where they have a camera set up. It's like, ha, 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 high five. This is like, oh, yeah, no, Adam totally is a fucking scumbag. Oh, yeah. This movie paints him as a scumbag, and that really gives him the most defined and significant arc of our three main characters. I agree completely. And it's very, very interesting because in a lot of these movies where fraternities are sort of glorified and they're seen as this be-all, end-all, this movie is really fair about admitting, hey, these are the things that are happening on campus the same way that a movie like Neighbors is like, hey, check out this frat house. Mm Mm-hmm. But this movie is very critical of what they're doing without it feeling heavy-handed. This like, movie is critical of everyone. Yeah. And again, that really adds to the who's this for if everyone is being criticized. But it makes it feel very authentic in a way that a lot of us, particularly comedies of this era, aren't. Mm-hmm. I asked you after we finished watching it the most recent time for the podcast, I asked, is this film problematic and poorly aged or is it fair and accurate for its era? And we pretty well agreed that, yeah, this movie is exactly what it should be for 2002. Oh, yeah. The comedy for this movie is very much MTV reality show mid to er like early to mid aughts era. Mm -hmm. That's what we're dealing with here. So it is accurate. That doesn't mean that it's okay. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's comedy. It's subjective, especially (laughs) considering the subject nature of a lot of its jokes. But... Yeah, that's just kind of kind of the grab bag you're dealing with with this film. I'm not going to tell you it's funny. I enjoy it, but I'm not going to say it's good and actually funny. Yeah. Because this movie got pretty universally bad reviews. I think it's sitting at like a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, yeah. It's it's kind of destroyed. But so their, their big scheme as to like how they're going to get back into the house is that they're going to pose as sorority girls and then they'll get invited to parties. They can get into the rooms. They can get the tape, clear their names. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, because they are men with zero experience as to how to present as a woman. They probably went to a thrift store and bought the first things they saw that could fit them. And mm-hmm. poor Adam always gets the most mismatched, loud outfits. I know. <laughs> they're, they're ridiculous. And uh, yeah, they, yeah, they manage to sneak in and then they get a dog catchered. Mm-hmm. where they throw a net on you and then drag you out of the frat house and then dump you on the front porch of the neighboring DOG sorority where mm-hmm. all of the quote-unquote ugly girls go. Yes, and the DOG house is very much like the Zeta house and the house bunny. Like yeah. These are all the girls that wanted to rush sorority but couldn't get into the quote-unquote pretty sororities for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. So this movie also is playing with 
sort of college tropes that we know exist. Like, it is still very Revenge of the Nerds in that regard of, mm-hmm. like, there's that one sorority that's really lame for everybody. Yeah. There's that. It's the Vortex and Sydney White. It's yeah. the Zetas and House Bunny. This is what you deal with with this genre. Yeah. So they then are accepted by the DOG house. And what's interesting is... Begrudgingly. It's begrudgingly so because even the DOG house where there are, you know, all of these quote-unquote reject All the misfits, yeah. All of these misfits, they even are suspect of them. And one of them even has the line of, they're going to make our stock plummet even lower than where it is. And I think that that's a really interesting aspect of what this film does because this movie is very honest about how we socially treat women who are, you know, quote unquote, ugly. Mm-hmm. And there's something that I wanted to bring up. This is from Mr. Roger Ebert's I've I've film read video. this. I know exactly what this is going to say. Yeah. And so here's the thing. Roger Ebert changed the landscape of film criticism. He did. Mm-hmm. He was wrong about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. He especially hates horror. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not the best when it comes to anything that's like queer coded in cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that this review is phrased is kind of atrocious. But again, this is 2002. And he's also an old white guy. Yes. And to say this is not how we were communicating in 2002 is inaccurate. So with that in mind and with that context, just listen to this. What is unusual about Sorority Boys is how it caves into the homophobia of the audience by not even trying to make its cross-dressing heroes look like halfway, even one-tenth of the way, plausible girls. They look like college boys wearing cheap wigs and dresses they bought at Goodwill. They usually need a shave. One keeps his retro-forward thrusting sideburns and just combs a couple of locks of his wig forward to cover them. They look as feminine as the soldiers wearing coconut brassieres in South Pacific. Their absolute inability to pass as women leads to another curiosity about the movie, which is that all of the other characters are obviously mentally impaired. How else to explain fraternity brothers who don't recognize their own friends in drag? Fun fun fact about this movie for anyone who's listening is that there's very little written about this film other than the occasional reviews. So I have read a lot of the major ones. And listening to an old-ass man like Roger Ebert basically scrutinize the inability to pass in this movie that I hold steadfast is a very good trans-coded film. Boy, Mm -hmm. sure reads real ugly in hindsight. It really does, because when you think about other movies of this ilk of people that are cross-dressing as women for whatever, Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire, even some like it hot to some extent. Mm -hmm. Films like this, they do pass. Yeah. Like that's something to, to acknowledge is that Mrs. Doubtfire is such a successful movie because people were blown away by Robin Williams' transformation, because he looks like a nice, friendly nanny. Yeah. Like, that's what he looks like. And the reason that, you know, Hoffman passes so well in Tootsie is, like, he's got this, like, beautiful makeup design. And in both of these situations, it's like we have a Hollywood actor, or, like, TV actor, whatever. And then in Mrs. Doubtfire, you have, you know, Harvey Firestein being his, his brother who makes prosthetics and knows how to do all this movie magic. Yeah. 
this is a college movie about college boys who have access to a Goodwill in cheap wigs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're calling out exactly what they had available to them. And when you think about people who are newly transitioning, what do they have? Mm -hmm. Like, this is a conversation that has been coming up again recently with um, Elliot Page mm-hmm. posting his, his new photo yeah. where he's clearly had top surgery. He's been working out like a fiend. Got cut abs, yeah. Yeah, testosterone, you know, did that muscle body very well. Mm-hmm. And then something similar is also like a Caitlyn Jenner mm-hmm. where you have these trans people who are already very high profile and because they have the means to just kind of disappear for a few months and then come back, they look like entirely different people. Yes. And it has caused this big skew in reality and perception, I think, for a lot of people into understanding what does it look like to be trans Mm -hmm. or what are you, quote unquote, supposed to look like if you're trans? Mm -hmm. Because there are so many barriers that people don't recognize everything from, obviously, finances. That's the big one. Yeah. But depending on where you live, you may have to live one to two years as that gender before they'll even allow you to even consider a surgery. Mm-hmm. And this is – there's this almost performative aspect of validation. In you know, um, this is going to be a kind of a gross comparison, I guess. But you know how we talked about a doofer doing like a keg stand? Some dude's just like, high five, yeah, you're my dude. And that instant gratification feels good. Mm-hmm. You have like these side-by-side comparisons that I, you know, I've made before. I see other trans people do where they're like, I'm really proud of the progress I've made. Look at me, you know, five years ago, pre-transition or whatever, and look at me now. And I really hate cis people judging trans people in instances like this on their ability to pass. Mm-hmm. It, it reads really ugly to me. It's like, you're so beautiful. Oh my good. Look, look how much progress you've made. And like, there's there's validation to that. But you generally only get praise like that if you've assimilated and if you've convinced people that you're not trans in some aspect. Like, you look almost cis. Congrats. Yeah. And it's really ugly in a way that just has never sat well with me, especially as I get older. Oh, totally. Like, we've had this conversation a lot off mic, but you transitioned, what now, 12 years ago? Mm, Going on 12, yeah. Yeah, so 12 years ago. And comparatively to, let's say, some of these, like, very young people today who do have a lot more access or do come from more money or mm-hmm. come from more accepting families, whatever, they are able to transition earlier, mm-hmm. They, which greatly impacts, like, how you, quote, unquote, pass. Oh, yeah. Like, Testosterone does some damage on your everything as mm-hmm. a trans woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not only that, but the amount of people who then do things like, you know, they'll, they'll get top surgeries or they'll get facial feminization surgeries. And that's just not accessible for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about how people look at you and sometimes assume that you're newly trans. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a person that you knew at one point who happened to come into a job I was working at and I was I was wearing a bra. And they were like, oh, my God, she was wearing a bra. And I was so proud of her for finally getting to do that. And I was like, bitch, I came out like eight years ago. Fuck you. Right. It's this idea that once you learn about transness, you assume that like you're supposed to reach certain goals or you're supposed to look a certain way by a certain time period. You have to have long hair and you have to paint your fingernails and you have to do all these things. Otherwise, what's the point? Quote, many cis people. Right. 
And no one takes into consideration things that are just not applicable. Like, you're very tall and you're very broad-shouldered. Mm-hmm. If we get you... I believe I referred to myself as a giant bony shoulder monster today on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And, like, if we were to get you top surgery... I'd be so top heavy. What? You, in order for them to look natural, you'd have to have these giant gazangas, uh-huh. and then they're not also going to look right on your frame. And if you get like smaller boobs, they're going to look super far apart because of how broad shouldered you are. And like these are things that we've debated constantly. And like these are the things that people don't take into consideration. They're just like, oh, you're trans, go to the doctor, get some boobs, get your stuff chopped. Bah, 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 bah. But, but, now you're happy. And it's like, that's not how it works. Yeah, before, before we sort of steer back onto the movie, I do want to say that it's not people's fault but one of the biggest insults that i get sort of inadvertently thrown towards me is people who do think that i transitioned fairly recently mm-hmm. and that's not to say like uh, how dare you mistake me for someone who just came out like those fucking scrubs like that's not <laughs> what i'm saying but but it but for cis people in particular to have this idea of what you're supposed to look like as a trans person as, after a certain period of time really discounts any work I've ever put into just like existing and kind of functioning the way I want to. I don't want to do a lot of things. I see people who go, yep, I came out. Now I'm scheduling my facial feminization surgery in six months and I'm just going to do everything all at once. I'm like, that's good for you. That's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm honestly insulted by people who think that that's something that I want and that's how my life is. Mm -hmm. We have pretty exhausting and very basic ways for how – we have very exhausting and very basic ways for how we like to discuss gender, but not everyone's goal is to look like a cis woman and pass and go stealth and, and hide. I, I remember I had a discussion with a trans woman I met one time who asked me, well, don't you want someone to see you as a woman or do you want them to see you as a trans woman? And I said, well, both, but specifically a trans woman because that's honest. Mm-hmm. that needs to happen. If every trans woman like just kind of blends into the nothingness of like, Ooh, we, we, we've drifted away into the shadows now <laughs> and you can't tell. And we walk among you like as, as ominous and threatening as that is, that doesn't help anyone. Mm-hmm. And, and movies like this were one of the only places I could look because 2002 was pretty much where you wanted to hide as a trans person. You didn't mm-hmm. want to be visible. And I think it's also important just for clarity's sake that if you are a trans person and your goal is to pass, is to go stealth, you're entitled to feel that way because I, dysphoria is a very real thing. And if that's what makes you happy, then that's great. The issue is not people who want to pass so well that they can go stealth. The issue is that that has become the expectation. Yeah, because realistically – What I think this movie does right and how this relates to society as a whole is that what's the opposite of, like, queer culture? Straight culture. It's, Mm -hmm. quote, unquote, normal culture. Mm -hmm. Queer people are existing in straight culture. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. This is a queer movie existing in straight culture. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I think, just a reality that doesn't get brought up enough, and it probably should be. No, I agree with you completely. And I think we see this in this movie most notably through Adam. Mm-hmm. Because Adam is the one who has the loudest outfits. And what's interesting is while I would argue 
is not the least conventionally attractive. No, that would be Doofer. That would be Doofer. Mm-hmm. However, Doofer isn't going to classes. Nope. So Doofer is staying in the sorority house for the most part, helping the girls deal with their issues, being the house mother, cleaning things. Mm-hmm. That's what Doofer is doing. Adam is just as quote unquote conventionally unattractive, but has to go to class mm-hmm. and has to exist in the world in this body and has to deal with society. And I think the movie showing this does something really, really important that we're starting to see a lot more of now mm-hmm. with the internet. Because now what we have is we have this sort of split experience generation happening where there are queer people and trans people who are existing in that straight world out and open mm-hmm. and having to deal with the ramifications of being out and open. You mean like how every job I've ever worked is interacting with the public and some people don't have to do that at their jobs? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the flip side of that where it's people who either only exist with their gender identity in online spaces, mm-hmm. which again – this is not us gatekeeping. This is not us saying that, like, you're not a real trans person. Just like saying there's differences. There's just differences in your experiences based on what you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely people who their transness is very rooted in, like, online communities. And they work, you know, in, in jobs where maybe they get to work from home and they don't have to deal with the public. That experience is going to be dramatically different from what you're going through. And that's what we're seeing with Doofer and Adam, or in this case, Roberta and Adina. Mm-hmm. Roberta gets to stay at home and like function as a woman at home. No and, hostility. Yeah, there's no hostility. It's all this internalized stuff that's going on, which again is just as important. And then you have Adina, though, who's getting screamed at from people driving by and having things thrown at her. Mm-hmm. And, like, that is a very different experience. And I love that this movie acknowledges that because no movies ever talk about it because it's the thing you don't want to talk about. You don't want to talk about how um, unkind we are towards women who aren't fuckable, basically. 1,000%. Yeah. Let's actually talk about this for a sec and how these three get treated after uh, taking on these these female identities. Mm -hmm. You have Dave, who... You know, goes to class, sometimes as a dude, sometimes as Daisy. Mm -hmm. People hold open doors for Daisy. Daisy's Mm -hmm. the pretty one. Mm -hmm. Roberta gets to flourish and work through a lot of, like, honestly deep-rooted emotional issues with the various misfits of the DOG house. Mm -hmm. And is given the acceptance and the space to work through these. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone like Adina who has to be out in public unlike mm-hmm. Roberta, but gets treated like shit, unlike Daisy. Mm-hmm. And also, this is the harshest, uh, for lack of a better term, transition for Adam, mm-hmm. because he's used to being like the cool guy and the big dog, and now he's getting treated like how he always treated women. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important, too, because there's another conversation that no one ever wants to have because it gets messy and icky. Mm -hmm. And it's that 
we are all socially conditioned a certain way by society with gender roles. Yes. It doesn't matter how progressive your family is, what kind of affirming household you come from, the world and everything around you is sending you messaging that's telling you that you need to be a certain way, act a certain way, do a certain thing. Mm -hmm. For people that transition, that also includes unlearning things. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's what we're seeing with Adam as Adina is living as Adina is forcing Adam to unlearn toxic masculinity and recognize, like, how shitty he's been as a person and, like, these weird... This is like a trial by fire. Yeah. Yeah. It's all of these, like, implicit biases and all of this stuff that is, like, rooted in the lizard brain of, like, oh, my God. Like, how do we live this way? Because there's a moment where after he's had things thrown at him, he has fallen, he's just embarrassed, he does a walk of shame, like, there's Mm -hmm. a whole thing. He comes home and starts screaming at the other girls in the house, not because he's mad at them, but is very much like, how do you let them treat you like this? And it's one of those moments where it's like, yeah, this is the first time that he's realizing you're part of the system, bud. Mm-hmm. Now you know how bad this feels. Yeah. How do you let them treat you like this? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Everyone treats you like this. Mm-hmm. This is the, what are you going to do? Pick a fist fight with the world? Mm-hmm. Your arms mm-hmm. aren't long enough to box with God. <laughs> like, I don't know what you, there's no easy solution to this. Yeah. And I, I really like that we see that because another thing that's a little bit messier and oh, we're basically walking through a minefield right now, especially with a lot of um, uh, a lot of very turfy uh, rhetoric. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. yeah, very much so. There is a moment where Adam, in in his attempt of getting the tape, dressed like Adina, mm-hmm. approaches uh, Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy! And Jimmy is. Adam's like fraternity little bro. Yeah. So like they're not actually related. This is like how sororities have bigs and littles. Like it's yes. big bro, little bro. That's it's that bullshit. Jimmy, for whatever reason, bless his heart, is dummy attracted to Adina. Mm-hmm. And it's never fully clear, like, are you super attracted to Adina just because you're attracted to Adina, or are you attracted to Adina because you think you can actually achieve? I feel like she's obtainable to him. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, yeah, I think she's hot enough that I want to pursue her, but also she's not so hot that she should be saying no to me. Yeah, that's very much where I think it is, too. And Adam, with encouragement from Doofer, they decide, go over to the frat house, pretend like you're going to hook up with Jimmy, roofie him so he passes out. That is not a roofie in Doofer's hand. It's some other unnamed thing that will make him go night-night. Yes. Uh, Get the tape and go home. That's the plan. However, in this previous life, before Adina has existed, Adam is the one who has trained Jimmy how to get girls. Mm -hmm. And because Jimmy is nowhere near the ladies' man that Adam is, this whole plan backfires because while Adam is trying to roofie Jimmy, Jimmy is trying to roofie Adina. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they pass out and they wake up the next morning and no one is sure what happened, but they're sure what happened. But they mm-hmm. don't want to talk about what let's, happened. Let's not talk about it. Let's not talk about it. That, that's honestly one of the most masculine aspects of this film is this specific, let's not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, dudes don't talk about things that happen like that. But they're open about everything else, but let's not talk about that. But what is so interesting about that moment is because, you know, they're Jimmy is aggressively pursuing Adina, and it's like this very funny physical comedy bit because Adina uh, Adam is so much stronger than Jimmy. So Adina- throws him out a window. He comes in through another window. <laughs> yeah. So Adina's just like throwing him into furniture. Shit's breaking. Throws him out the window, and like it's supposed to be this very funny, like haha, look how strong she is. But also at the same time, it's like no, this this dude is trying to like rape this woman. Like that's what's happening right now, and she's fighting back. This isn't funny. Um, but as the drugs sort to take hold. And Adina is starting to like pass out. All of this sound in the back of her head, kind of like those dreary memories, are mm-hmm. going like, "Who taught you about skanks, Jimmy? That was me. Who taught you how to do this? That was me." And I think that that moment is so poignant because it is the realization that Adam is having that, oh no, something really bad is about to happen that I'm not gonna be cool with. And I have no one to blame but myself because I taught him this. I'm part of the system. I'm perpetuating this bullshit. And now I'm on the receiving end of it. Oh, my God. What have I done? Bro, I have awesome news. I did what you said. I got a girl, a skank. I banged her five times and she was begging for more. And you didn't. I mean, that's great. That's great, Jimmy. No, no. Wait, I... You shunned. I am not supposed to be talking to you. Hey, hey. Hey. Who's your true bro? Huh? Who told you about skanks? Yeah. Who's me, right? Yeah. This is a movie where, especially from Adam's perspective, but really everyone, oops, it's the consequences of my own actions. Yeah. You know, what, what, what's that line from The Craft where it's like, the magic you put out there will come back to you three times? Yeah. This actually brings it back to you in full three times force, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And Adam, after waking up and probably having had sex, doesn't know for sure, then has to walk the walk of shame through the house. Mm-hmm. The same walk that he made dozens of women do before, and we see their pictures at mm-hmm. the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's it's truly this like taste of your own medicine sort of moment, but nothing about it feels like haha vindication. It just feels fucking sad. It's very sad. Because it's that realization of like wow, I'm a garbage person and I've done garbage things and having to reckon with how terrible that is because a thing that we don't ever like to say, and we talked about this briefly on some previous episodes, there are plenty of dudes who genuinely don't fucking know that when they do stuff like that, that it's being shitty. Mm-hmm. Like they, they, Like there's some disconnect in their fucking brain where they think that what is happening like, oh, no, this is what I'm entitled to, or this is just part of college. Yeah, this you've is- seen other dudes do it. Like, that's the thing that we see with the cock house is that at the end of the movie, like, I guess fucking spoilers, is that, hey, uh, Dave and Adam and Doofer are, are let back into the house and they've changed their opinions on everything and are, like, good dudes leading towards a good future in this. And all the dudes are like, yeah, no, we fucked up. Let's, let's not do that again. And that's all it takes is good dudes... To not set bad examples. It very much makes me think of the never been kissed rule of popularity is all you need is one person who's popular to think that you're cool and then you're cool. That's really what's happening here. Yeah. It's like you didn't. Just break the cycle. That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. Just take one million percent. One or like a couple guys who aren't pieces of shit and are actively not pieces of shit. 
Which then can also go into the argument of it shouldn't have taken them being kicked out of their frat house and having to live as women to realize, hey, don't be dicks to women. No, this is like one of those articles of like, I went on a dating site pretending to be a woman and oh my God, women are treated terribly. Who'd have thought? Yeah. And it's it's this this conversation that we have all the time about this is that that shouldn't be the way that it is. But unfortunately, just like Republican politicians who suddenly are cool with gay shit when their sons come out. Some people need the personal connection because they don't have that level of empathy because we don't teach people how to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. And especially not men. We teach men to shove their feelings down as far as they can go and pretend they don't exist until they become 45 years old and blow up. Yeah. And it's just, it's a real fucking shame because we argue a lot about like dismantling the patriarchy and, you know, dismantling that system, which we should do. But we never want to have the discussions about how the patriarchy also harms men because Mm -hmm. it does. Mm -hmm. And yes, it is up to men to undo the learning that they've been conditioned to having. Absolutely. It is not our job to educate men on how to not be pieces of shit to women. It's not. Mm -hmm. But we're not there yet. Yeah. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're not there yet because we're still telling men to man up and do all these things. So it's just a continuation of toxicity. Yeah. And... Speaking of not being there yet, uh, I, I want to talk about a little bit of my own personal experiences, I guess, with with coming out as trans and how we're not there yet is for the last, you know, 12 years almost now, I've seen trans women and trans men and non-binary people constantly be like, oh, this should be this easy. I'm like, okay, it should be, but it's not. And they go, well, people shouldn't act like this. And I go, yes, they shouldn't, but they do. And we're constantly making these little strides. But it's a really slow, difficult process, and we're not there yet, but we're always making progress. And I think that for a lot of people who haven't been out as long as me, they don't realize how far shit has fucking come mm-hmm. in that time. Because when I came out, there was literally no online community for trans people. Mm-hmm. None. I found uh, some like vloggers, a couple with like very low views on YouTube at the time. Uh, one of which had made a site where trans women could congregate and talk to each other in like a chat room. And there was maybe never more than like 10 people in that room at any given time. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the best. And it was like lo- the blind leading the blind of mm-hmm. just being like, hey, we're all freshly out and we don't know what the fuck we're doing. But also no one's here to help us. Mm-hmm. And seeing like, oh, yeah. From 2010 of, like, when I probably would have been going on these sites to 2020, it is not even measurable how far things have come. Mm -hmm. It is beyond scale. Mm -hmm. It's like when you see those giant piles of rice where it's like, this one piece of rice is this thing. And then you see a mountain of rice that's like, this is actually the number of stars in the universe. And it blows your mind because you can't process the scale of that. Right. It's like that. Yeah. And I love pointing to films that are ugly and messy about how they handle topics Mm -hmm. like this one because it is context that is important. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you completely. I was thinking about this the other day because I've begrudgingly rejoined TikTok. And a major reason why I am there is because of the amount of young trans people who see you and I specifically and view that as 
wow, I really can find somebody someday. Like I'm not going to be alone forever and I'm possibly going to be able to be in love and have a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. And going back to what you were saying, like when there, when you don't have that representation, when you don't have something that feels tangible, like you can't process it. It, it yeah. feels like an absurd thought. But since being on there and I've been talking to like a lot of, you know, younger trans people or people who have just recently transitioned and there was there's going to be a massive boom in the next couple of years from the amount of people who sat inside during quarantine and figured their shit oh, yeah, out. A lot of self-reflection when you're left alone with your thoughts. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of them have been coming out. And the difference is they now have access to things like TikTok and like YouTube where they're is a heavy trans presence of people being like, hey, here's how to do your makeup. Mm-hmm. Here's how to find clothing that'll fit you. Here's how to tailor clothing that you have so that it fits you in a more feminine way. Mm-hmm. That did not exist 10 years ago. No. And for the amount of, like, it, it's great that we have this progress and it's wonderful, but there has also then developed this massive disconnect where people cannot fathom how bad it there. used to be. Like, yeah. they, they cannot understand it. One movie that I did not bring up that from 2002, and this is my go-to whenever I need to kind of tell people who are younger, hey, you want to know how bad gay politics used to be? Go watch the movie Boat Trip. Oh, God. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, we didn't have a lot of gay representation in a post-9-11 America, and what we did was really awful, and we didn't like it, but that's what we had. Yeah. So... Yeah, I fucking watched Boat Trip because you have Cuba Gooding Jr. in like a showgirl outfit going, how could you think I'm gay? And that was me going, I can relate to something here. I don't know what it is. And that's what I had to work with. Yep. And it's, it it really, like, I feel like it can be encapsulated the most in the, not, not, like, I'm not getting in the pride discourse. Like, God, no, we're not going down that rabbit hole. But the, there's a big trend right now on TikTok of, like, people raiding the pride merch collections at stores mm-hmm. and just shitting on them. And, yeah, a lot of it's super cringy and oh, real yeah, the, dumb. Oh, uh, yeah, the short sleeve, short shorts, rainbow suit on tar- at Target. Yeah, like, nobody, nobody asked for that. But what they're not fully understanding is, like... Do you realize what progress looks like? Progress looks like being able to have Pride merch to shit on. Yeah, remember uh, <laughs> when we were in high school and the closest you could get to Pride merch at the mall was going into the adult section of like a Spencer's where they had like two pairs of rainbow suspenders. And you would and get that a key, was it. And you would get the keychains because they had that wall of keychains and that's where they could hide a lot of gay shit because I was gifted many a keychain that said things like vegetarian mm-hmm. because that's what we had. That was the only options. Yeah, just and unreal. <laughs> I I love this movie for a lot of reasons, but as far as poorly aged goes, there's this movie is actually very critical of things that are poorly aged by its own time. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about feminism. Oh, Boy, we feminism. Haven't, we haven't talked about Leah yet, or really a lot of the DOG girls yet. Um, most of them are pretty one note. Like you have Big Patty, who's you know a gentle giant. You have Heather Matarazzo, who's just screaming. It's because of the sound of my voice, isn't it? Oh my god, I love her so much. And the, it, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but this is the role I always associate her with when she's clearly in much better films. But you know, you never forget your first. And you have, like, um, the French girl who's like, oh, yeah, she's Harry. Like, they're all pretty one-note characters. Yeah. Leah is a aggressive, 
overbearing feminist. Leah is Julia Stiles in 10 Things I Hate About You, but presented in a way where she's not supposed to be someone you identify with. Correct. And I think it'd be really easy for people to go ahead and point fingers at her being like, oh yeah, they're making fun of her because she's a feminist and they're saying she's like unpleasant and whatever, but she's not because of that. The reason that she's unpleasant is because she has a teacher in her women's studies class where she is likely learning a lot of her feminist ideals. Because we all, like, I've talked to so many people who learned about, like, racism 101 and sociology 101, and then all they can quote is from what they learned in this class because it blew their mind, but they don't actually understand the history or the processes of it. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you have white people say, like, uh, 400 years of systemic oppression. And I'm like, okay, cool, but can you say anything other than what you're parroting from a class? Right. Leah is just parroting things that her teacher says, and her teacher is stuck firmly in second-wave feminism. Oh, yeah. Very much so. And one of the first introductions that we get with Leah is her being super critical of the tripies, mm-hmm. who are the, the hot the, girl They're sorority. the Barbies. Yeah, you know. they're the hot girl sorority on campus. And there's a lot of, like, really anti-femme messaging that Leah is putting out she where- She doesn't want them to be sluts by sleeping with- the cock guys. Right. Even though that's their choice. Right. Like, are they bad dudes and they shouldn't be doing it because they're clearly predatory? Absolutely. But it is their choice to go to the party. It's maybe not their choice to be assaulted. No. But, but Leah's not having that nuance. No, she's not having the thing. She's not having the conversation of like, you do not deserve to be assaulted. She's having the conversation of like, if you go there, you're a slut and you're setting back feminism. And like, mm-hmm. no, they're not. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Yes. Not, not with her, obviously, with you. Right. And it, I'm having this, like, verklempt moment here because, as we have discussed on the show, I have spent many a year being a floozy. Have I had sex in frat houses? Yes. Yes, I have. Because I thought it was fun. Mm-hmm. And it was fun. I forever will always think it's hilarious when men, like, thought this was this big conquest and it was like, mm, nope, still gay. Like, mm-hmm. Because I have a broken ass brain. Like, I'm fully aware that the, that there's something disconnectedly wrong with me. I understand that. We've discussed why. Yes. And in I go past to, episodes. Yes. I've just go listen to Promising a Woman. It'll make way more sense to you. And then you'll have a bad time and then come back. But I understand that. Nothing about that means that I'm not like a feminist or that I am de- degrading to wit. Like, that's not how that fucking works. Like, mm-hmm. Second wave feminism is so anti-sex and yes, so because, puritanical. Yes. And third wave feminism was more about body autonomy. Yes. In a way that um, a lot of our uh, not feminist feminists of uh, who hate trans people are second wave feminists. They don't care about your autonomy. They don't want you to be a slut. You can't reclaim things like bimbo because men still think you're a slut. So how can you reclaim it if you're just playing into their hands? Which is just so, it's forever frustrating. Yes. And this movie is critical of everyone, but it's not critical of women specifically. It's critical of poorly aged concepts of you know pro-women ideals yeah it's it is not critical of women it's criticizing the messaging that women are being fed the same way that this movie is not critical of men it is critical of the messaging that is being given to men Mm -hmm. and how that it then gets perpetuated through a society yes like this movie is so much smarter than it has any right to be and it's wrapped up in a really dumb movie yeah and it's one of those moments where 
I have this debate of like, did you understand how complex and nuanced this was or did you luck into it? And I'll never know. But the people who wrote this and the, the guy who directed it, they're all people who worked in The Simpsons and they worked in kind of like glory year Simpsons mm-hmm. when it was like kind of peak satire. So part of me thinks they knew what they were doing and this was intentional and it just went over everyone's heads because we weren't at a place culturally yet where we were having these very nuanced discussions. Mm-hmm. And... Speaking of nuance, I know that we talked about it earlier being a minefield of various things, but let's let's talk about uh, quote unquote men infiltrating women's spaces because I want to talk about that specifically with how there's romance in this film. Mm-hmm. Because Dave and Leah become a uh, romantic item where Leah develops feelings for Daisy but thinks Dave is a guy who's only in women's studies to skeeve on women. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely times where uh, they shower together and Leah doesn't have her contacts in so she can't tell that, you know, Daisy has a very boyish body and people who are very critical of trans women in women's spaces would say, see, it's men who are just trying to infiltrate women's spaces and trick them so that they can look at their boobs and stuff like that. And... Mm-hmm. Having a discussion where we're we're saying like, okay, cool, but they are men and they are in a women's space because they're not trans is certainly playing into that. However, Dave doesn't touch her. No. He's attracted to her brain. Mm-hmm. And he even has to learn about himself where at one point he like kind of tests her intellect by quoting Shakespeare. Then she quotes it back and says, oh, is this where I get under the table and suck your cock? Because it's supposed to be a romance move. Mm-hmm. And Dave didn't realize, like, oh, I'm just testing women. This doesn't actually prove how intelligent they are. Mm-hmm. I'm actually an asshole. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love the way that you are navigating this two-gendered romance angle between these characters because it really is a great example of, like, love knows no gender that we like to preach all the time. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have a lot of stories where pre and post, I guess for you know lack of a better term in the case of this film, trans woman is still loved by the person that they're involved with. So I want to quote from an article about sorority boys. Oh. And it's transness. Written by you. You mean the only person who's ever written an article about this movie? Because we looked all across the internet and outside of reviews or like lists No one has actually done an in-depth analysis of Sorority Boys except Harmony. Uh Uh-huh. And this was, what, the second thing I ever wrote on my medium? Yep. That I don't use anymore? So I'm going to quote this. (laughs) The complications of navigating growing feelings for someone while in disguise is a common trope dating back to Shakespearean times. But it is atypical to see those conflicting feelings explored while that person is in and out of disguise. This makes the perceived lesbian relationship between Daisy and Leah unique, especially after they end up together at the end of the movie, after Leah learns that Daisy is Dave. Suddenly, the guy that she thought was only taking women's studies to skeeve on women and the sweet girl from Minnesota that caused her to question her own sexuality turn out to be the same person. It is a more sincere look at the phrase, love knows no gender, than that found in a lot of more acclaimed and probably much better queer romance plots. It's certainly not perfect or done that well, but it's a scenario that I appreciate seeing. Man, when I actually get to write down my thoughts, it's so much more concise and clear, huh? (laughs) But no, I agree with you completely because what I find so fascinating about this 
relationship is that to Leah, Daisy is the person that she fell in love with. Daisy caused her to question her sexuality. She Had thought her first lesbian experience. Right. Is all of this with Daisy. And then when it is revealed that Daisy's actually Dave, now Leah has to navigate those feelings and contextualize them as, as having these feelings for a man, which is really interesting. Considering she hates men the whole movie. Well, one, she hates men the whole movie. But this moment, like their relationship specifically, is also a trans man read. Mm-hmm. Because if Talia, Daisy's a woman, is a woman, is a woman, and has always been a woman, and is the woman she fell in love with, but now is Dave, that is the same sort of feeling that people are going to have if you have been... Married to a woman is a woman is a woman. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, no, they're a trans man. And mm-hmm. like, do you still love this person or do you love the gender? Like what that that's going to be a big thing. So seeing that is fucking mind blowing. Yeah. Especially in this fucking shitty movie that I love so much because it's having these conversations. Because it, it was only the first time I watched this movie with you. Because I had seen this before on, like, Comedy Central and whatever. Yeah, but there's a lot of things that are cut out of that. Exactly. But watching this with you, we were sitting there and watching Leah navigate those feelings with Dave. She sits next to him on the couch and is like, you know, if you talk to Daisy, let her know I feel like I've lost my best friend. Because, like, that is a real person to her. Like, that is the person she fell in love with. And having to now recontextualize that as like oh no i have these feelings but they're for a guy Mm -hmm. that that's a trans man read and that's incredible that this movie has that incredible and that it handles it the way that it does Mm -hmm. because this is a very gracious film i think in how it handles a lot of its gendered themes because straight films are usually shit at this um i think of films like uh, joanna man i think was around the similar time yeah. and joanna man's a hot mess or you could think of um like white chicks or jack and jill or any of these other 2000s you know quote-unquote cross-dressing movies you'd get at the time and they are the most binary and bland discussion of gender especially for punchlines but there's something i appreciate about what this movie does in having these discussions like this that isn't even present in actually queer films. Mm-hmm. So many of these quote-unquote queer dramas, um, like I think we were a couple of years removed from Transamerica, which I fucking hate. Mm-hmm. But like think about Transamerica, how where they have to take Felicity Huffman and go, yeah, you're too pretty. We have to make you kind of uglier in order for you to look like a trans person. Right. And we're going to have this be only about your transition and we're not going to talk about anything else, including your fucking son wanting to have sex with you, which is gross and weird. But to see that a straight film handles all of this, and, you know, it's it's messy, it breaks some stuff along the way, but it aged better somehow. I wish we were messier with our queer media. I don't, I, I don't want us to play nice. I agree with you. And I think the reason that we are unable to have that messiness is really rooted in the assimilation and the we're just like you movement that was pushed when we were still fighting for marriage equality. And likely we'll have to continue to do so because I don't know how much longer that's going to be a thing because Mm -hmm. Republicans going to Republican. But we did this thing where we started to push these really like heteronormative roles onto queer people of like, 
we deserve to get married. Look at this couple. They've been together for 57 years and they've never been able to get married because it's illegal. Whereas Britney Spears can get married for 56 hours, blah, blah, blah. Like that became Mm -hmm. such a talking point. And one, like, fuck you, leave Britney alone. But two, this idea that like, we are suddenly better at relationships because we're queer and like we understand love differently. No, we fucking don't. We're still a bunch of humans fumbling around trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make any fucking sense. We're all idiots trying our best. We're all idiots trying our best. And that is the thing that gets so frustrating about a lot of the queer movies that we have because it kind of feels like we can't let the straights know that we also have problems. Yes, they're movies about what you're supposed to do. What it's what is a queer movie supposed to look like? And that was the whole complaint about like what happiest season was, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that like, oh no, the, the relationship's messy and it's not happy and the queer people are mad about it because we just want a happy ending. And also we don't want the straight people to think that this is what's actually going on behind closed doors with our personal lives. Whereas I knew plenty of people who watched that and they're like, oh no, I've been on the receiving end of that, of coming home with my girlfriend and they are not out to their parents and that shit sucks. Mm -hmm. So like that was accurate. It's messy and it sucks, but it isn't inaccurate. I want our queer media to be messy. And I think that the late 2000s, early 2010s, like Oscar dramas really set us back in a big way. Yeah. Suck my dick. I want to revisit something that you mentioned about Transamerica and how they had to make Felicity Huffman look uglier Mm -hmm. in order to be read as a trans woman. We need to give you big hands and a bigger jaw. Because this is also something that happened with Dog Day Afternoon, where they had originally looked at a trans actress to play the role that eventually went to Christopher Sarandon and won him an Oscar Mm -hmm. because she looked too cis and she Mm -hmm. was too pretty. So they went with a cis man. Comparatively, Sorority Boys showcases what is essentially an early transition and it's awkward and it's clunky and it's not very fashionable. Mm -hmm. But I think the presentation of Adam as Adina is the most accurate. So I'm curious what you have to say about that presentation versus quote-unquote, queer movies. I think when it comes to Adina, the, the biggest the biggest way that she differs in how she presents versus our other two characters is her insistence on wearing heels. Mm-hmm. And she wants to do it because, oh, it makes my legs look slimmer, and I have a fat ass, and it makes my ass look better. And we are in a pre-Kardashian world where having a fat ass was still, like, it was a death the worst. Sentence. Yeah, no, I, and like, she doesn't even have a big ass. No. And isn't even like the fattest one in their friend group. No. It's it's so strange. But there there's some more casualness to what Roberta and Daisy do. And I think that there's this pressure for Adina to look so high femme because otherwise she won't pass. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know what you could say about this as like a bigger picture, but when you first come out, there's a lot of awkwardness to figuring out your fashion, what works for you, what you want to wear versus what you can wear. And it's it's this whole thing where when I first came out, most of the stuff I wore wasn't a style that I wanted because I bought it all from a 24-7 Kmart at three in the morning when no one was there. Mm -hmm. So I wore a lot of like Route 66 clothes Mm -hmm. because that's what Kmart had. Mm -hmm. 
or I would buy like business professional sort of stuff from like the cheaper section of Kohl's because I wanted to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh look, look, I'm together, I'm presentable. So you have to take, you have to, you have to trust me that this is real. I don't look like a mess, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I look respectable. Fuck respectability politics. I know, but it was. <laughs> but I understand. It was 2009, yes. <laughs> and I was working through some things. We don't have to be babes. Just believable. What's easy for you to say? You're pretty. <laughs> Thanks. You know, I just kind of throw it together, and yeah. But poor Adina just is wearing the most ill-fitting, tight, unpleasant-looking yes. stuff. Everything had like all of the tops are in this weird crop length that don't work for her. Mm -hmm. So it causes additional scrutiny where, you know, you want to just grab her and be like, oh my gosh, honey, like come to the other side of the store. There are crop tops over here. They will fit you. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Or like these skin tight pencil skirts where she's trying to hide her ass, but that's the thing she's deciding to wear. It's like wear an A-line. Right. It might not be in style in 2002, but you're in college. No one fucking cares. That's wear, the whole. Wear a fit and flare. Yeah. There's so many more options, but, but n- this is what you think you're supposed to do. Yes. And nobody gives you that guide. Like nobody is telling you, hey, if this is what you're trying to accentuate, here is how you do it. There's no guidebook for that because we we can't just crack open a 17 magazine or a teen people or whatever and know how to do that for a body that is not cis. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not going to, to work in the same way. And those resources just don't exist for people. So that's why we do end up with Adina looking kind of like a mess. Yeah. Uh, a discussion we had with one of our friends who, you know, makes clothing was how there are no real bona fide underwear companies for trans women. That are not fetish wear. That's not like lace or fetish. Uh, like, you can get like a gaff. Or like a dancer's belt, but that's not made for trans women. That's made for like cosplay or dancing. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of targeted ads for like plus size clothing because I am plus size. I, I don't know what size dress I would wear. I'd probably be closer to the 16 or 17 because I'm just, I'm big. I'm tall. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever you get these targeted ads, it's always like some, you know, we call it good fat. Yeah, the flat stomach, big thighs, good like waist to hip ratio. I have a lot of feelings about plus size fashion. Yeah. That'll come up in our hairspray episode eventually. Whenever we do that. <laughs> but all of the ads I get are for like, you know, these women who are good fat. And I am not good fat. I'm not even really fat. Yeah. You're quite so, slender. <laughs> yeah. So uh, all of these things that are meant where it's like, oh, you're bigger. That must mean that you have a lot of hips. No. Must mean you have more thighs. No. Must mean you have an ass. No, actually, I don't. So none of this stuff is meant to fit me. None of these things are made for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I understand from a, obviously. A very different. A very different perspective, but also nothing is meant to fit me because my boobies is too big. Um, But I'm glad that we're having this discussion because these are the uncomfortable conversations that no one wants to have, cis or trans, Mm -hmm. because it can lead into a a slippery slope into like gatekeeping conversations. It can lead into a slippery slope of like, oh, well, you're not affirming choices. Mm -hmm. And before I moved to Cleveland and I was still living in the Chicagoland area, I did some outreach work with a gender affirming salon that was teaching makeup specifically to trans women. And one of the things that I was brought in for was to help with sort of like goth style or alternative style makeup. Mm -hmm. And what was always really frustrating in those instances 
is that I would have a woman come in and she's like, I want to learn how to do a smoky eye. I'm like, okay, cool. Show me what kind of smoky eye you want to do. Mm-hmm. And then they would show me a picture of this like, you know, beauty blogger, whoever, with a completely different eye shape, with a completely different like set of products. And it's like, I can't recreate this look using high end like Mac products with like Revlon and a completely different eye shape. Like it's going to look different no matter what. Uh And these are like these conversations that I think we're so afraid to have sometimes with women or just in with anybody that is, has an interest in something to do with the beauty industry is it's not always like, Oh, this doesn't work for you because you can't pull it off. It's like, no, you have to do things differently in order for them to work with what you have. Yeah. I had, I had similar problems back during the, uh, brief period where I modeled as a trans woman when I was way skinnier and more unhealthy. And uh, the people who would do like makeup for runway shows didn't know how to work with my face at all. They would just do it however, and I would always end up looking terrible. And they would just try, I think they would try to cover it up by being like, oh, we're just going to do everything like extra intensely because when you're under the bright lights on the runway, like it needs to be able to show up. And that's true. However, I think they just didn't know what they were doing with my face and just overdid everything. Mm -hmm. Because then at least that way it looks intentional versus like, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And I don't, I'm I'm sure that I am just breaking everything, but you can't build up a new system without breaking everything along the way, right? Yeah. I wish people were more direct about like almost tough love. Mm-hmm. With 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 stuff like this. Well, because the thing is, we we give that tough love to cis women when they're like thirteen, when they're yeah. young and they're yeah. playing with mom's makeup and they're taking a giant red lipstick and putting it all over their face, and you're like, "Holy shit, no! Let me show you how to do this correctly." We don't offer that for trans women because people are afraid that if they tell them, "Hey, this looks fucked." Then you're telling them, oh, you're fucked or like, oh, you're not good enough or you're not passing or you're not doing this right. That's not what it is. Like, it's it's not a matter of like, you're not doing this right or like, it, you're not good enough. It's a matter of, there are techniques to this. Please let me help you. Yeah, there's a moment where Roberta is at the makeup counter and puts on, I don't know, 12 different colors and goes, oh my God. which one of these looks the best on my face? And the, the poor person working the makeup counter just goes, um, uh, orange, and then like walks away and- Clearly, that's meant for a joke of like, yeah, you look like a fucking hot mess. But also, how would other people handle this situation? Are they going to handle it much better? Because right. w- what are you going to say? Like, you can't pull off a green. It's like, are you th- saying that you're th- – th- can I not pull off green because I'm trans? It's like, dude, no. No, it just doesn't work with your complexion. It doesn't work with your phase. <laughs> and yeah, it gets – you know, these are the conversations that I really wish that we were having more of. And this movie – at least touches on them. They at least offer an entry point to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really interesting that there's so much material and sort of trans positivity that comes out of a movie that for all intents and purposes was probably pitched as frat guys have to go undercover in a sorority. Hilarity ensues and producers were probably like, ha ha, that's brilliant. Let's do it. Honestly, with that pitch, they probably thought there was going to be a lot more boobs in this movie than there are. Yeah, there's not a lot of boobs. No, very few. Mm-hmm. But it's like, oh my God, they're in the girl sorority. You're going to see like sexy underwear pillow fights. It's like, that's what this movie should have been, but it's not. Yeah. It's a lot smarter and it's a lot kinder. Yeah. And kind of going off of this femme presentation thing we're talking about, I also love that this movie is subjecting a lot of expectations because one of the ways that they're trying to get into 
the cocktail cruise is, oh, we can win the powder puff football game. And, you know, we got these three guys on the team. We're going to be great. There's, you know, the tribe highs aren't going to have a chance. And then they show up to the powder puff game and the tribe highs who were these like high femme, quote unquote, like slutty prissy girls kick absolute ass at football. Well, they play dirty. Well, they do play dirty, but they also know how to actually fucking play football. They do. Like, they can throw, they can kick, they as can a, As tackle. a unit, they all know how to play football as opposed to three people on the dog team. Right. And I love that. I love this idea of just like, oh, no, we can do that. We can take on these girls. And it's like, can you? Can you take on these girls? Because they take them out first. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing. They They're don't smart. like. They know. Yeah, they know. They are like, we're going to take out the three, quote unquote, like masculine girls. And they do. Mm-hmm. They need uh, Roberto right in the. Oh, my ball. Vagina. She kicked me in the vaginas. But it just, this movie toys with gender in such a. In such a way that I think is fun. I don't know if other people will. I I would love to. I can't wait to hear what the feedback on this episode is going to be. I feel like it's going to be people who are either really glad that we're having these conversations or people who are going to feel really attacked by these conversations. And then I'm going to feel bad. I'm not trying to attack anyone. I'm purely trying to, I don't know, not not impart my wisdom. That sounds pretentious. But like, Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of trans movies. I've seen a lot of real life stuff. And this is just kind of my takeaways as as a person who's pretty well seasoned. I'm I'm basically beef jerky at this point. All I want to do is teach people how to do their eyeliner so they don't look like The Undertaker. <laughs> That's all I want. Yeah. <laughs> I I truly, there's so many things that I wish somebody hit. When I was only doing my eyeliner under my eye and not on the top, I wish someone had gone, you know, you really should do not the opposite of that. Or both. Yeah, no, but, I can't. I, but I never can't, the one. I can't do both. It, yeah. it doesn't look good on me. You can't bottom? That's a lie. Mm. <laughs> yes, it doesn't It doesn't look good on me, so I, I accept that. But I wish people had told me more, not just like, you're beautiful, go get it. And it's like, you, you, you can be a little more helpful. Yeah. It's almost too supportive. It, it, it's like toxic positivity. Yes. Where it's almost as, it's not obviously in the same league, but it's almost as detrimental as like blatantly offensive, awful people because it, it's the same lack of, nuance that people are talking through where they just refuse to entertain anything that's not within very stringent like no but this is all good and i have to be all good or else i'm bad oh totally i mean we were talking about this the other day on social media that when people are trying to affirm me they'll say things like oh my god you're so brave you are such an inspiration you wear that tube top because i'm a fat person and then the way that they affirm you and your gender identity tends to be like, you are so hot, and I am a straight man, and I still find you attractive. That's how affirming I am right now. I would rather someone call me, like, a faggot than either of those things. <laughs> right. Don't call me brave. I'm just trying to get through my day. <laughs> so just, and the thing is, I understand the intention behind it. You're trying to say, hey, you're safe with me or like, hey, I don't have a problem with this, but you don't know how to say it because that's a fucked up thing and weird thing to say to somebody. So instead, it gets twisted into this mess of just toxic you know, positivity. You could just, you know, if you want someone to just feel safe around you, don't be a dick. Yeah. Then you can sort of convey, hey, 
I don't think you suck. Being a trans person, it doesn't have a lot of benefits. It's almost universally negative compared to most people's lives. (laughs) But one of the only good things it has going for it is that assholes tend to wean themselves out of the equation. Mm -hmm. So, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Harmony? Yes? I think the time has come, and I think I already know the answer. Sorority Boys is asking you to the prom. It's asking me to the cocktail cruise? No, not to the cocktail cruise because then we have to like play football and do a lot of shenanigans. This, we're just keeping we it easy. We have to get skeeved on by that guy from the Twisted Sister video? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to do that. So Sorority Boys is asking you to the prom. Okay. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? It's a yes. I own this movie for a reason. I watch it maybe once a year. And whenever I need an excuse to go, okay, but for real, this movie's great. <laughs> but despite it being like walking along like a rickety bridge that you think might collapse under your weight at any given moment, this movie is not a trans film. It has trans reads, some of which are, are very dangerous in the wrong hands. But it's more positive nuanced and intelligent than most trans films I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of bad media or <laughs> like like this the fact that this is so much better than the Academy Award nominated Danish girl I don't think it gets credit for that. And it should. It should. Okay, is it funny? I don't know, that's up to you. Comedy's a very subjective genre, but in terms of like the actual things that it's saying underneath like the boner jokes and stuff There's good things there. And I love that. I love it too. And I love that I was able to watch this movie and have you explain it to me through your eyes. Because I fully admit that watching this when I was younger, I thought this was just like a cheesy sex comedy that hated women. And it was only watching it with you that I realized this movie's messages are a lot more important and deeper than we give it credit for. And... It is a shining star coming out of a decade that is filled with just absolute trash. So much homophobia, so much transphobia, and how how this movie, of all things, is the best, I'll never know. But I, I, I want people to give it its crown. This movie deserves things, <laughs> and it deserves kindness, and I, I love it, and I'm glad that I got to messily describe in rambling ways why this movie is amazing. I was like the second you were talking about like how much homophobia and transphobia there were from movies at this time. It made me think of like the only aspect of this movie that I think you could give kind of a homophobic read to is when Jimmy and Adam are having that conversation about like, this didn't happen. Did it? You didn't actually do this, right? Like we didn't actually have sex, right? That didn't happen. You plugged your big bro. Right. Like that whole conversation. But that scene to me reads less like gay panic or homophobia And more of a commentary on how men don't talk about their feelings and men don't know how to process negative emotions. Mm -hmm. That's what that says to me more than anything. Agreed. And if you really want to take that moment from this movie as an example, so many of the scenes and scenarios of this film should be worse. That should be such a bigger, more dynamic, homophobic punchline, and it's not. Yeah, and the thing is, I don't even think that the stress so much is that he had sex with a dude. It's that you had sex with a dude that you know. Yes. Like, it's your bro. Yeah. Like, that's what made it weird for them. Yeah, so it's not even like a trans panic thing. 
No. Yeah. It's wild. Like it's it's very wild. Um I don't understand how this movie is as good as it is. I don't know what forces and planets aligned to make this possible, but I'm so glad that it did. I agree. I would love to be able to pick the brains of the people who worked on this movie and be like, okay, cool, but did you know? Did you know <laughs> did you what know you were how making? Good you were? <laughs> did you know how good this was at the time? I, I have to know if this was an accident or if you actually had that much forethought. <laughs> Well, friends, I think that is going to take us out on Harmony's birthday treat of sorority oh, boys. Oh, my birthday treat. <laughs> if you like the show, feel free to give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really genuinely and sincerely does help. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Our tiers of giving start at just one doll hair. So that's always really fun and exciting. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I am also on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. Please message me or comment on things to tell me what you thought of this film. I, I, I need to hear other people's opinions. <laughs> and a huge thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool kind of like indie band to promote this week? I do. And because it's my birthday, I'm picking something that has a lot of the hallmarks that I love about indie music. So recently, the Bruce Lee Band, led by Mike Park, released an EP called Division in the Heartland. And it is a super duper fun, like, ska punk album. But it features, like, Jeff Rosenstock and Oceanator and Jer from Scottoon Network and We Are the Union and Laura Stevenson and a bunch of these people all coming together for, like, five really kicking songs and... I love it. It's one of my favorite releases of the year so far. So just thought I wanted to plug lots of people I like in a genre that I like, and hopefully people will enjoy it. Well, awesome. That sounds great. It is great. Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Roberta, and I'm addicted to porn and I masturbate constantly. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.